This episode is sponsored by the TED Interview Podcast, hosted by Head of TED Chris Anderson. Each episode is a deep dive into the ideas of the most compelling TED speakers. Season 2 features a far-ranging lineup. Monica Lewinsky on the culture of online shaming, Bill Gates on the future of technology, and a lot more. Check out the TED Interview wherever you listen. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 16th. Today, the U.S. Treasury is running out of money. The story behind new campaign fundraising numbers, and science gets a closer look at Apollo moon rocks. I've been thinking about ways to try to make this sexy so that more people can understand it and be into it, okay? And there's no way to do it. There is, however, an easy way to make it scary. That is Damien Paletta. He covers economic policy for The Post. The federal government spends $12 billion a day. Every day. So the Treasury Department is spending so much money, there's so much going out, and there's not enough coming in. And eventually they run out of money because they just don't have the cash. Yes, the U.S. Treasury Department is running out of money. This is like the fiscal nuclear bomb. Like, really, this is the government defaulting on its obligations. It's one thing if Congress doesn't appropriate money and the agencies have to shut down. But if the government cannot pay its bills, not just fund agencies, but like its bills, then it's a huge, huge disaster. Damien says that no one wants this. The whole, you know, safety and soundness and the significance of the U.S. dollar, everything is called into question. And... All of us would be impacted. It's not like we could just ignore the EPA being shut down for a week, but your bank account would get creamed. You or someone you know could easily lose their job. Interest rates on borrowing money would skyrocket. It would be a total mess. A mess that could be avoided by raising the debt limit. But so far, that hasn't happened because of gridlock between the White House and Democrats on Capitol Hill. And they're running out of time. The worst case scenario is like, beginning of September, even before Labor Day, because they're no longer allowed to borrow money. The debt ceiling has expired in March. They're doing all these emergency steps to try to postpone this big mess. And the government borrows money by issuing debt because we spend more than we bring in. And so they think they're going to run out of time as soon as early September. And at that point, they won't be able to pay all their bills. It would be a huge fiasco. But the real question here is, why are we running out of money? The government spends $4.4 trillion every year, okay? And it brings in about $3.4 trillion in tax revenue. There's a trillion-dollar gap there. So let's, you know, a lot of people can relate. You spend more money than you bring in through your paycheck. The only way you can cover your lifestyle is by maxing out your credit card. And the credit card company for the U.S. taxpayers is, you know, China and all these companies that we issue debt to. But there's a law that says the Treasury Department can only issue debt up to a limit set by Congress. And so Congress has to keep raising that debt ceiling in order for Treasury to keep borrowing money. Now, they keep raising it. Now we've got $22 trillion in debt. That allows us to have low taxes and, like, you know, a lot of government programs that we normally wouldn't be able to afford. So these are kind of decisions that we've made as a country. We want low taxes. We want a lot of programs. But the only way to fund that is by issuing more and more debt every year. Why is it that 
even though the economy is doing really well, we're still maxing out our credit cards. Because the president has decided that the economy needs more fiscal stimulus to keep going. And that stimulus is tax cuts and more spending. The biggest tax cut, biggest reform of all time. So it's an honor to have you with us, and we will sign this right now. This is something I'm very proud of. Great for our country, great for the American people. Thank you all. And so you could say, in a way, he's sort of juicing the economy. He's making, he's giving it like a sugar rush, a shot in the arm to keep it going and give it some momentum to kind of plow through the next recession, which is, you know, a possibility. The other risk is that he's juicing the economy so much on borrowed money that when things do slow down, it's going to be even messier because not only are we going to have kind of an economic mess, but we're also going to owe all this additional money to, you know, foreign countries and others who have bought our debt, and that's going to make it even harder to dig out. So what are we going to see happen over the next few days to to prevent us running out of money? The Democrats are trying to force the White House to agree to a decent increase in spending over the next two years. They, they've they essentially said, we will raise the debt ceiling, but only as part of a package that increases spending levels for the next two years. Now, Republicans have said, OK, we'll negotiate that. That seems like a, a fair target. We don't have the same spending level idea that you do, but that's kind of what the back and forth is about. The problem is they're about to go on August recess at the end of next week, and they have to sort of line this up quickly so they can have votes in the House and the Senate. Speaker Pelosi, you know, seems like doesn't have a total grip on her caucus right now, and it's very easy for them to sort of turn their back on a compromise with the White House and say, we're not playing ball with this. Well, we'll just see. I mean, obviously the... uh we don't want any there to be any doubt about the full faith and credit of the United States of America. We'll just see about the timing. We're having our back and forth conversations, but we understand the value of that. We also understand how important it is for us to lift the caps so that we can meet the needs of the American people. And we're having those conversations at the same time. So if those things don't work out, the White House is trying to pressure Pelosi to just raise the debt ceiling, even if it's for a short term, so that they don't run into this problem when Congress is out of town and Treasury can't borrow any more money. So that's why there's all this gamesmanship going on right now. And, you know, usually they get something done at the last minute. It's possible that that happens again. Maybe even it's likely that happens again. But whenever you get close to the edge, you run the risk of slipping over. And so I think as we haven't had this dynamic before, you know, with the Democrats in control of the House and President Trump. So we don't really know how this is going to play out. And complicating matters even further, the president hasn't even said he will buy into this whole arrangement that's being negotiated right now. So there's a lot of things up in the air and not a lot of time to sort it out. What are the different options on the table? So option A would be what they're negotiating right now, which is a two-year budget agreement combined with an increase in the debt ceiling. As far as the Democrats are concerned, that's the only option on the table. Now, the White House Treasury Secretary Mnuchin on Monday laid out two other options that he kind of put out there himself. One is for Congress to not go on recess in August and just stick around until they sort it out. And option B, he said, was just to increase the debt ceiling on its own. I think there is a preference on both parties to the extent we can agree on the debt ceiling and a budget deal, that that is the first choice. And I think we're we're getting closer. Because, and this is a view that Treasury secretaries from both the you know, Democrats and Republicans have said in the past, you just cannot mess around with this. They have to get this done. But this should not be like a political bargaining chip. Exactly. And what we heard from Speaker Pelosi on Monday night, what she told our Erica Warner is that, that's not something they're considering, okay, a standalone debt ceiling increase. 
they are only going to consider this global agreement. Because if you are negotiating a global agreement, you get everyone at the table. If you already are negotiating fallback plans, then everyone's attention kind of drifts away. It seems like this kind of political brinksmanship, where we have these situations where the government is getting shut down or the government is running out of money, that they're happening more often. Why is it that we're seeing more of these moments where the government is like narrowly averting these terrible economic crises? I think one reason is that there seems to be no political consequences for doing this kind of stuff. We had the longest shutdown in American history from December to January. It was like seven months ago, okay? The president's poll numbers are as high as they've ever been. And so it doesn't seem like voters are really punishing him for what happened. The same thing happened with the shutdown we had during the Obama administration that was led by Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas. You know, there was a lot of fury at the time, but people sort of got over it. And so I think there's this sense that it's actually better to stand up for what you believe in, get a lot of attention, draw a lot of arrows, than, you know, kind of chicken out at the last minute and back down. The debt ceiling, I would think, is a much different stick of dynamite because the damage could be global. But the fact that they're getting so close to the edge shows that everyone's trying to, you know, posture and figure out how much leverage they really have, even if it requires going to the brink. Damien, thank you so much. My pleasure. Damien Paletta is a senior economics correspondent at The Washington Post. are you? What do you do? My name's Jenna Johnson. I'm a political reporter here at the Washington Post, and I've been covering Beto O'Rourke's presidential campaign for the last few months. I got this email from you at 11.40 p.m. last night. What was this email? Yeah, last night was a very late night. I was still at the office, and I had been waiting for hours to see how much money Beto O'Rourke had raised during the latest fundraising quarter. And he was the last major candidate to announce this. He waited till pretty much the last minute to tell us. And when I saw the number, I knew why. He only raised $3.7 million dollars. Which, is, which, which I gather is not that much. Well, it is really low when you compare it to what he raised the last fundraising quarter. The last fundraising quarter, he was only in the race for 17 days, and he raised $9.4 million. And $6 million of that he raised during the first 24 hours of the campaign. He's basically gotten less than half than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this puts him—it depends on who you compare him to. If you compare him to— what some consider to be kind of the top tier of candidates, people who are leading in the polls, all of them raised at least $10 million during the same time frame. But this puts him right in line with kind of the middle tier candidates. And I think that you have to think back to what we thought about O'Rourke maybe six months ago to understand like why this is actually really surprising and kind of remarkable. Yeah, it's really astonishing. During the Senate race, Beto O'Rourke was a magnet for political donations. 
he didn't even have to really try. I mean, he wasn't really fundraising, but he raised $80 million for his Senate race. That's record-breaking in so many different ways. And he really, through that race, became this political rock star. Hey, Janie, is that a Beto sign in your front yard? Uh-huh. Yeah, so they call it Beto-mania. And I mean, that's really, truly the best way to describe it. People were losing their minds. Beto O'Rourke! He would hold these town halls all over the state. Wow! Even in tiny, tiny little conservative towns. And tons of people would show up. All right, everybody share this. Beto O'Rourke is on a skateboard in a Whataburger parking lot. I don't know if it gets more Beto. You gotta share this. You couldn't go anywhere in Texas without seeing Beto O'Rourke bumper stickers and t-shirts and people were just so hopeful for him. And people all over the country were watching him. They were studying him. You turned me into a Beto And we just haven't seen that momentum continue into the presidential race. And why is that? Why has he struggled to translate that excitement and enthusiasm to a presidential race? Well, I think we have to remember last year he was running for Senate against a Republican and not any Republican. He was running against Ted Cruz, who is loathed by Democrats and frankly by a lot of Republicans also. And on a debate stage with Ted Cruz. This is what you can expect over the course of this debate. Uh, Senator Cruz is not going to be honest with you. He's going to make up positions and votes that I've never held or have ever taken. He's dishonest. It's why the president called him lying Ted. And it's why the nickname stuck, because it's true. He was a rock star. Now that he's in a presidential race, he's running nationally, and he's running against fellow Democrats, a lot of whom have much more experience than he has. And I think for a lot of his supporters, they saw that during the first debate when he was on stage um, with other candidates. I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge I'm in this country. If you're about, fleeing, if you're fleeing desperation, asylum, then I'm I want to make about, sure I'm I want to make sure that you're treated else. with respect. I'm still talking about everybody but, else. But you're looking at just one small part of this. I'm talking about a comprehensive rewrite of our immigration that's laws. Not true. And if we do that, I don't think not, it's asking that's too much not for true. people I'm to follow about, our laws. They just felt like in this new context, he's not the right fit. I was actually just down in Texas with a colleague, and we talked to dozens of people who were super involved with Beto O'Rourke's Senate campaign. I actually pulled out my notebooks from when I was on the trail with him last August. And I just and you went back to the same people and called people I had talked to just a few months ago. And person after person after person said, I love Beto O'Rourke. I really wish he'd run for the Senate again. But, you know, it's just not his time for the presidential race. And it Mm. pained them to say that. One woman I talked to lives in Austin. Her name's Katie Barron. She first heard Beto O'Rourke speak at Willie Nelson's Fourth of July picnic in July of 2018. It's my honor to be with you here tonight, to be able to work with so many of you, to be with legends like Ray and Willie. And just was awoken to politics. She just believed in this guy more than anyone. And she got politically involved for the first time. 
And so in October, right as early voting was starting, she commissioned this massive mural in this alleyway in East Austin. (laughs) And it shows Beto O'Rourke kind of standing like Superman (laughs) and like pulling open his, you know, signature button down. And there's a T-shirt underneath with a B on it. I mean, this is how much this woman believed in Beto O'Rourke. And then you went back to talk to her again now. So the mural is still up. But there's a Facebook group that was dedicated to the mural that has since been taken down. And after the first round of debates, Katie Barron was so excited by Kamala Harris's aggressive, fiery performance that she took a photo of the mural and photoshopped it and put Kamala's face over Beto's face and put a K on the chest (laughs) and posted it on the Facebook page saying that there's still so much love for Beto O'Rourke, but that Harris had earned herself some praise and attention that night. So this journey that Katie Barron has been on with Beto O'Rourke is really emblematic of what I was hearing from a lot of Texas voters, people who really, really believed in him in 2018, but they're looking at other candidates. They feel like there are other candidates who are stronger. With that said, he still does have supporters in Texas. His campaign points to rallies that he's been doing, including a recent one in Nashville, Tennessee, where a thousand people showed up to see him. They say that aside from the polling numbers, aside from the fundraising numbers, they think that there's another movement that's happening and that in another couple months, we're all going to be surprised to see him come back. But at the same time, we've seen some situations where great fundraising numbers don't always translate to great poll numbers. And we've seen that last night with Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much everyone in the field, their fundraising number, their polling numbers, they correlate, they make sense. And then there's Pete Buttigieg. He raised more money than anyone, nearly $25 million in just three months. But he's kind of lagging in the polls. His numbers are actually closer to Beto O'Rourke's numbers than those who are at the top of the field. And why is that? Part of it is he hasn't really started spending the money that he has. His campaign is just much, much smaller than that of other candidates. He hasn't built out this big campaign infrastructure that he would need for a full presidential run. And so I think we have to kind of wait and see once he starts spending the money, if that helps with the polling number. Or is it that he's getting money from people who are just so excited to see him in the race? He is a historic candidate. He's our first openly gay, prominent Democratic candidate. And there's a lot of people who want to see him in this race and want to see him continue in this race and are giving him money, even if maybe he isn't ultimately their first choice. What do you think are some of the other major takeaways from other campaigns and their most recent fundraising numbers? So as I was waiting for O'Rourke's numbers to come in late last night, I did a quick sketch of everyone's numbers from the first quarter and the second quarter. And then I drew a little arrow between them, either up for, you know, an increase sideways for staying the same and down for a decrease. Joe Biden, the former vice president, I mean, this really kind of is his first quarter. He raised, you know, more than $21 million 
second in place to Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren saw a huge increase. And that tracks with the big burst of enthusiasm that we've seen for her campaign. Kamala Harris stayed about the same, which second quarter is more difficult than when you're launching your campaign in the, in the first quarter. So her campaign was excited about that. Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, appeared to stay kind of the same. But again, everyone who's in what we're kind of considering a top tier of candidates, they're definitely over the $10 million mark right now. And so there is this widening gap between the people who can raise those numbers and people who just won't be able to match those numbers in coming months. Yeah, I mean, we've also seen, for a lot of the candidates who are doing well, a big boost after a debate. Julian Castro, the former HUD secretary, saw a big bump after his debate performance when he actually went after Beto O'Rourke and and was kind of a fiery presence on the debate stage. Everyone's kind of looking for that viral moment that will get them into people's minds and onto television screens. But the reality is, there's only so many Democratic donors, and they only have so much money. And a lot of them want to make sure that that money is going to campaigns that are going to be around for a while. So the scramble for dollars is very real. Jenna Johnson is a political reporter for The Washington Post. Minus 10, 9... Fifty years ago today, the world watched the launch of Apollo 11, the mission that would put the first man on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were on the moon for about two hours. And during their very last minutes, Armstrong was assigned to pick up samples from the moon. Basically, he had to collect as many rocks as he could find and put them in a box that would come back to Earth. And these samples would represent the first pristine rocks we've ever gotten from the surface of another world. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter at The Post. We uh, got a good bit of the ground mass in the... For example, plus a sizable number of selected rock fragments of different types. So it's been 50 years since we first got samples from the moon. And throughout the Apollo program, a lot of samples were made available to researchers, but some of them were held back in reserve. And the idea was that scientists of the future would have technology that they couldn't even imagine then and questions that no one had even thought of yet. And so the idea was you want to keep some of these samples pristine. Don't let them be touched by human hands or exposed to Earth's atmosphere. Sort of lock them away like a capsule, and someone in the future will be able to open them. Uh, Roger, Neil. Uh, One of the uh, implications here is uh, the depth uh, from which the uh, bulk sample was collected. Uh, Did you manage to get down uh, several inches or uh, near the surface? Over. 
And so NASA has decided that a few of these specially curated samples, that's what they're called, are going to be made available to scientists for the first time. We're going to learn things from these rocks, inevitably, because there's so few of them, and each one of them contains a little different piece of history. But we're probably not going to revolutionize our understanding of the moon until we go back. Because one thing about these rocks is necessarily the Apollo astronauts had to land to places that were safe, right? Relatively flat areas that they knew they could get in and out of. And places that are safe are not necessarily the places with the most interesting geology. And so there's probably a lot of cool stuff out there that we just like haven't explored yet. And if we want to get different and diverse rocks that can tell us new things, it's going to take another sample return mission or another human landing. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter at The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.